Baruch Ata Adonai, Eloheinu Menekaolam, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Hamim, Venatan Lanu et Torato, Baruch Ata Adonai, Noten Ha Torah. Amen. The prayer before study. May it be your will, Hashem, my God, that it miss out, not come about through me, and may I not stumble in a matter of Torah and cause my colleagues to rejoice over me. And may I not say regarding something which is to me that it is to whore, and not regard something which is to whore that it is to me. And may I not, and may my colleagues not stumble in the matter of Torah, and I rejoice over them. For Hashem grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil my eyes that I may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai Mashiach now. Welcome everyone to the Rumination Study, the last one of 5781. So we're heading into Rosh Hashanah and a beautiful new year. And may many, many beautiful and wonderful things happen for us. And may we all be inscribed and sealed in the Book of Life. L'Shana Tova Umetucha. And without further ado, here we go. Amen. Shana Tova to all. May the curses of the previous year depart and the blessings of the new year be made manifest for everyone. For all Kalal Yisrael. Amen. And it's Rumination 49. How can the followers of Messiah make Israel Jealous. Mm. I sense this is going to be very, very much deeper than we think, because that's a very, uh, a very shallow thing to think. You know, especially when you understand the the depth that Judaism provides, and uh, what is the dynamic of being a follower of Mashiach for the past 2000 years compared to that, you know, because it hasn't really, at least I haven't really seen, you know, anything like that. And, um, you know, what we're getting into now for those who are realizing, oh yeah, we should be Jewish. We should be converting, following Torah, being halakhically kosher and things like that. Now we're talking a little bit about this question but outside of that not so much <laughs> yeah that's um the other part is how can we make israel zealous nice And how can we make the followers of the Mashiach zealous? Zealous for Torah. 
for Torah. Yes. For that matter, the church, the so-called church. Mm -hmm. Yes. How can we provoke them to come back and ignore 2,000 years of anti-Semitic theology? Wow. See, this is juxtaposed to my prayer many years ago when I asked Hashem, how can I be a witness to the Jewish people mm -hmm. about Messiah? But it turns out I can be a witness by keeping the Torah because the Torah is a witness. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Large Ayin, large Dalit. Mm -hmm. There it is. Yeah. Um, we find in this week's Parsha, I believe, Moshe's instruction of placing the, the scroll next to the Brit Aron mm -hmm. as a witness. And yep. this is in the Mishkan, which it also is a testament. Yeah, that's the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these two witnesses. Uh, yeah, see, I can see just the look on your face. Okay, I'm thinking Revelation, right? The, the two witnesses. Mm -hmm. Could these be the two witnesses? Yeah. It's pure speculation on my part, you know. Um, I mean, we could come up with verses to possibly substantiate it. Right. Well, remember, Chazal brings down how many different two witnesses witnesses there are you know between yeah, exactly. Moshe Eliyahu Eldad Medad <laughs> you know like the list is pretty extensive so in Romans 11 1 through 14 Paul says that God will use Gentile believers to make Israel jealous if you were to visit any messianic congregation in the world today you might wonder if possibly the reverse of this is true <laughs> you might think that by what appears to be gentile messianics do wannabe quote unquote behavior it shows that gentile messianics are jealous of israel Of course, in some Christian circles, they make that very point that Messianic believers have it backwards. But of course, they are focusing on the wrong aspect of jealousy. <laughs> yes, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, but Gentiles have embraced the roots of their faith, are motivated not by the green-eyed monster, but by love and zeal for Hashem. Mm. Mm. Wow. I mean, I've heard, and I know if you've heard being in the church, the quote unquote, the Christian life. Yeah. I'm going to go get my uh, Basora. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I just feel like this is a must-have when we're ruminating. Romans <laughs> 11. Yeah, because I think if we first get down to the word that's used which is Kina, Kuf, Noon, Aleph. All right. You can keep going. I think you were on a thought. Uh, um, yeah, the so-called Christian life. But we both know that's a departure from what life should be like in Messiah. Hundred um, percent. I could. It's safe to say the, the so-called Christian life does not provoke Israel to jealousy. There's no aspect of it that I could find in my study of Scripture, being a student of Torah, that there is nothing there because they continue to hold to theology that is diametrically opposed. To the principles of the Torah. Because the Torah tells us how to live. It tells us how to believe. It tells us how to walk. And with the help of the rabbis, the sages of the Talmudic period, we have a lot more to go on. <laughs> the theologians' misguided understanding of the Tanakh. Um... You know, it's just like uh, Paul says in Romans. Um, I'm going to read it from the CJB. In that case, I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? These are verses in, in Paul's letter to the Romans. Honestly, they're skipped. I've never heard these verses of scripture used for a sermon, at least in my tenure in Pentecostal circles. Hmm. Wonder why. It's not convenient. It does not fit into their theological box of replacement. Oh, the church is the new is Israel. Right. We both know that is not the case, especially with the seven half Torah of comfort and consolation that were read the last seven weeks coming up to today. This being yeah. era of Rosh Hashanah. Yeah, I didn't want uh, the one we just read uh, this past Shabbat. I didn't want it to end. I was just like, no, keep going. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Shaul goes on to say, you know, heaven forbid, meaning never think it. Right. You know, it's like Yeshua says in Matthew 5.17, do not think. Meaning don't let it enter your mind. It's like the Canaanite woman who comes to him asking him to heal her daughter. And the master says, it's not 
good to cast the bread before the dogs. Mm. True master, but the dogs eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. You know, he says to her, you know, woman, you know, great is your faith. So there's a case where she provoked the master to zeal for someone outside the household of faith of Israel. Yeah, like the man who didn't want Yeshua to come underneath his roof. He's like, I haven't seen faith like this among the people in Israel. Exactly. Another case. You know? And there's, yeah, that likely happened about the time of Sukkot. Mm, under the Sukkot? Wow. I'm not worthy that you should come under into my Sukkah as a Uspazine. Wow. Wow. But nonetheless, he provoked the master to zeal. He did. You know, in so much that he says to the centurion, I have not seen this kind of faith. No, not in Israel. That's just this. That's just not zeal. That's an indictment. Yeah. But that's a rebuke to his own people. Why don't you have this kind of emunah? Why? Hmm. It's like Peter in the boat in the stormy weather, you know, and he sees the master walking on the water and he says, Master, let me come walking to you. So, right. <laughs> you know, and for a split second, he takes his eyes off the master and he's, oh, I'm drowning. Help, 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 help. You know, <laughs> you know. But Shaul goes on to say here, quite the contrary, is by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles. Mm. This is an admonition. It's Shaul warning the Gentiles, do not think for a second that Hashem has abandoned Israel. He has brought you in, yes. But if the church keeps on maintaining what they have been maintained, oh, we're in the new covenant. Okay, so this you better totally... hope Hashem does not make another new covenant because what are you going to do? Thankfully, He won't because this is the renewed covenant, it's not new. So that goes with Baba Batra 21a. Believe it or not, I was looking up Kina, right? And it was like, oh, yeah, just like it's used in Baba Batra 21a. So what you just said, right, the Gentiles, they've been invited, welcome in. Don't think Hashem is abandoned Israel and don't think like you can surpass, you know, like all this stuff. Well, check this out. Let me see if I can go back to the beginning. So Rava is talking about education. He says, and Rava also said, if the current teacher of a class of children teaches at a certain pace and there is another teacher available who teaches at a faster pace we do not remove the first teacher and appoint the other one in his stead for if the second teacher were to be appointed 
he might become lax in his work, arrogantly believing that his teaching abilities are beyond compare and he will never be dismissed. I know you feel it. You see it. <laughs> That's and spiritual snobbery, man. That's spiritual arrogance that he's dealing that they're talking about. I'm telling you, man. That's and Shaul what does quote that. He he says, "Let not a man think he is something when he is nothing." First Corinthians ten. <laughs> yeah. Which I what I'm going to do this time around. I'm going to, like I did last week, I'm going to touch on the Torah commentary because he touches on that. Excellent. Okay, now here's the key statement, though. Rav Dimi, however, asserts the current teacher should be replaced with the superior one. Rav Dimi from Nehardia says, if the second teacher is given the position, all the more so will he teach at a fast-paced, uh, for jealousy um, between scholars increases wisdom. The second teacher, wary of the jealousy felt towards him by the teacher he replaced, will exert himself all the more, lest the other teacher be afforded an opportunity to embarrass him by pointing out his shortcomings to the town folk. Now, what's interesting is we read the English and it says jealousy. But this is why getting to the Hebrew is important. Yeah. Because when you look up the definition in Ivrit, you actually get words like zeal, jealousy, lust, ambition, and this word named emulation. Emulation means effort to match or surpass a person or achievement, typically by imitation. So what we're all talking about here, like, number one, if you want to make Israel jealous because you're the follower of the Mashiach and you're supposed to be taking things to the next level, first rule you can't do it by doing something completely different. <laughs> you have to be imitators, not only of Hashem, but also of Israel. Yep. Which, by the way, Israel dies, Kiddush Hashem, for idolatry, for uh, sexual immorality, and for bloodshed. You remember those few requirements acts 15 yep so i'm pretty sure there's a lot of idolatry going on with the followers of the mashiach <laughs> for the past 2000 years namely we don't even know what the first of tishrei means or we don't know what sukkot's really all about do we even know what tishabab is if you can't even do that, then what are you talking about? Yeah. Um, you brought up invitation. And the one thing to make clear is that we don't purport divine invitation theology. Gentiles are not invited to keep the Torah. They're, they're grafted into the covenants of promise, mm -hmm. which can bring about 
Israel being zealous for Mashiach. Because by any other means, you won't be able to accomplish this. Right. Because it's the whole thing of when you graft into the tree, you actually cause the sap to be uh, revitalized. Because now it's got to work a little bit more to nourish the new, the yeah. new branch. And the roots wind up growing deeper into the ground. Mm-hmm. Grabbing more nutrients to feed the branches that were grafted in. See, this, this is why we need the Jewish people, the physical descendants of Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. Because they're like an older brother that teach the younger brother, this is how it is. This is it. Especially when you study Talmud like we oh, do. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Could you imagine people like Mizraki or uh, Rabbi Anava or Rabbi Asher Meza or Rabbi Trugman, like one-on-one sitting down with us with the Ivrit, the things that are untranslated that they actually study from and being like, okay, so here's, okay, what you got this, right? And then take that connected with this, like, that's what we're talking about. That's what we need. That's right there is the answer to the question that we started with the rumination. The provoking to jealousy followers of Mashiach, it, that's how it's supposed to look. Like we can make those type of connections. And yeah. nothing comes from a place of arrogance. Nothing comes from a place of, oh, you don't believe in Yeshua. It's like, no. <laughs> do, do we all believe in Hashem? You know, like... <laughs> I you mean, know how many times in these, uh, in these Torah lectures, how many times uh, Messiah is mentioned? And, and they say, oh, Jews are not Messianic. Uh, I beg to differ. They are. All of them are. Yeah. Because that's how I've come to look at it now. That's what the Shem has showed me. Yeah. You know, it, it's us coming in and provoking them to zeal by studying Torah the way they do. Yeah. You know, like getting into like Torah Wellsprings, uh, uh, Chivle Pincus, you know, I'm grabbing that one every week. And this, this last one was just fantastic, man. You know? Yeah, I saw you just posting like crazy. I was like, oh, he done, he done dipped in there. Okay. You know, it's, well, you know, it just, it speaks to me, you know? It does. Like every single week for me, I mean, it's yeah. just around my head on fire. So you know, I was, I was sharing it with the group. I shared it Friday night. You know, I read, I read that last part, especially about the, uh, the Amin Teshuva, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. we can do Takum for the ten utterances. Yes, yes. You know, we plan, man. He be. He, he, I call him, I literally call him show enough Pinkus. Because it's like show enough. Like, this is just, oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, the part about Yaakov when he went past Beit El mm-hmm. and he didn't even know it. You mm-hmm. know, from the Midrash, you know, that was fantastic, you know, because um, 
my wife shared a video with me today that she found that she's on an email list for mm-hmm. um, the rebirth of, of a nation. Yeah. I shared it in the group. The link is a, a song on YouTube. Okay. And this lady was walking at Beit El giving us kind of a, an overview of the place itself where mm-hmm. Yaakov slept and all the stones became one. She was pointing out all this stuff. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, this is fantastic, you know? And she was reading from the Tanakh, that section in Bereshit for that Parsha, you know? And yeah. I just thought of that Midrash where Hashem folded space-time and Yaakov was like, bam, he was right back at Moria. Yeah. Because I was going to say Bethel and Moria are completely different locations. Yeah. Yeah, Bethel is also known as uh, uh, Peneel. Oh, my gosh. The same place he wrestled with the angel is the same place he laid down to anoint. Oh, my gosh. Wow. The face of the Almighty, you know. Because that's that, what El, that's what El means, the all powerful one, all that from the men. So the house and the face, because you have bait and pan or pan for paniel. So this was the house of God, and I didn't even know it. Like seeing his face and not being aware of it. Yeah. Like the way the brothers saw Yosef. They looked at his face and they couldn't even recognize him. Who are you? <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's the interesting thing is that Hashem doesn't reveal himself until we repent. Until we do Teshuvah. Mm. Exactly why Yosef revealed himself. Because Judah was willing to take the, re- the responsibility for what he did. Yeah. Teshuvah brings the revelation. Yeah. Which is why we haven't seen the kingdom yet. That's precisely why. And also Lashon Hara, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, That's something that the church needs to get a hold of because they keep on speaking Lashon Hara against the Torah. The very revelation of Hashem from Sinai. Mm-hmm. This is why they are stuck at the Peshat level, but not just that, by coming up with all this erroneous teaching that mm. is inconsistent, that contradicts the Torah, contradicting Shaul's words. Yeah. You know, it's. Which, which by the way, because of that level of the Shankara, when they make accusations like that or when accusations are made like that, you basically erase the tabernacle, uh, Shabbat, the Sapphire tablets, and the second set of tablets. Because if you deny the Torah, you deny the revelation, which is Pasha Yitro all day. So it's as if we never made it to the mountain. It's as never... I mean, it's as if we've never made the golden calf, got the tabernacle, you know, had the whole uh, three weeks of mourning, you know, renewed of the covenant. 
Like all those things get tossed out when you speak against the Torah, which I don't know about you, but I don't feel comfortable with that. Because <laughs> no, how many how many Torah portions is taken up with the details of the Mishkan? Like a lot. Yeah. I think all the way to the end from Exodus 25 to the end of the book. Mm -hmm. At least. Because yeah. then you get into Vayikra. That's 15 which the whole first half. Yeah. <laughs> 15 chapters, the 15 Shirmaha Alot, the 15 steps to the Beit HaMikdash. Mm -hmm. There's another layer of soul there. Yeah. You know, so, so I'm just and it's like uh, like with Lashon Hara being such a, a terrible thing, you know, you're really denigrating the Torah. You're denigrating the, the, the revelation, you know, of Hashem into the world. Like this was public display for the first time for the whole entire world to be made known, you know, uh, uh, for Torah to be made known to the world. Yeah. Um, so. No, anyway, there's no fear of heaven before them. You know, it's um. Yeah, it continues. Traditionally, Christianity has considered that all Jews everywhere are somehow jealous of the Christian life. With some exceptions. I, I will say I did meet a Jew once that was um, excited to convert to Christianity, which threw me off because <laughs> I was like, wait, what? Whoa. He's like, yeah, I just felt like where I was, like I had no way to really express, you know, my love for God. And since I've started going to church, like I feel the freedom of expression is like abundant. I didn't know a lot at the time. I was a new convert when I had this conversation and it just was like, I, okay, you know, no judgment, but uh, I also don't understand. <laughs> but to him, it, it reminds me of the, uh, the commentary that's coming out about unorthodoxed on uh, Netflix oh. where they bring up all the people that have the bad experiences in Judaism, you know, and then they end up leaving or abandoning the faith. And then they're made out to be these heroes for doing so. Yeah. But it's kind of like you're using very small um, occurrences and very interesting dynamics you know, because those aren't, that's not abundantly prevalent in Judaism, these things that are being shown. So it's like going around and finding like the most horrible circumstances and, and shining the spotlight on it and being like, here's, this is Judaism. And it's just like, that's an isolated thing, you know? Yeah, I've seen uh, news stories about uh, men and women who, left uh, Kabad tell similar stories, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
all, you know, stuff like that tends to happen is because uh, they become enticed with the things of the world and are unaware of the damage that can be caused. You know, like your, you know, like the Jew that you encountered who converted to Christianity, he doesn't know how, how idolatrous Christianity really is at its heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, Easter comes rolling around. What are you going to do, man? You want to go to the restaurant? You know, like here in Minnesota, Famous Dave's, they're notorious for serving pork. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, you know, it's... I don't know if that through would cause him to question conversion to Christianity or not. That's right or sham. You know? I mean, to start doing the whole egg hunt, start yeah. trick-or-treating, and I mean, all the stuff that comes along with it. Yeah, you know, he's, you know, they're not going to tell him that those things. Because, I mean, it all gets spun to be some kind of avoda for Hashem. Yeah. And you're just like, that's the opposite of avoda, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> a vote <of> Zara, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's those same people that put this the book of Leviticus on the shelf and it collects dust when they fail to realize that it's about calling us to be like him. How can you claim to be like the master when you absolutely refuse to, when you're loath to obey him, Hashem, in the first place, when you reject his Torah? I mean, you have no standard at that point to really focus on or to live up to, to even begin to reflect the, the essence of Hashem. If you get rid of the Torah, you have no basis, no ground, you know, for even becoming close to Hashem. Yeah, you know, and if you cling to the uh, the apostolic writings, which have no foundation without the Torah, then you're advocating a, a new religion. Here's a thought. Go through all the apostolic letters and take out every verse of Torah. And what are you left with? Just the writings of men. And it really won't make sense. You think it doesn't make sense now. <laughs> but if that's you really. That's, you know, just to uh, bolster your point there. Um that's all you have. You're taking away their Jewishness, just like they took it away from Yeshua. Because mm -hmm. they're all Orthodox. Yeah. And their observance. You know, I brand you as a heretic immediately. Because 
Uh, I pointed out, was it that? I think I pointed this out last week or either the week before that the Torah was given in the presence of an entire nation and not just that, but the entire world. Oh, yes. It was offered to the 70 nations. But what did the 70 nations do? Oh, we got this excuse. We have this excuse, you know. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's in a vote is there. <laughs> you know, it's and had Israel not accepted it, the, the universe would have come to an end. Mm. Um so really is all the words that come out of a pastor's mouth on a Sunday morning is completely subjective. Okay, that was that was heavy. <laughs> I mean, wow. how can you name the name of Messiah and yet denigrate Moshe, who brought down the Torah, and yet you're all too eager to take his place? Or if you go with the words of Shaul, who says Moshe brought down the Messiah. Yep. Oh, yeah, Romans 10. Which yeah, I remember connected, that. Which I connected with Rabbi Nachman. Uh huh. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I don't think uh, Yosef. I think got it, mm-hmm. but no one else. I don't think did. You know, and I, and I get it. I understand. You know, it's pretty heavy stuff. You know. Yeah, it's, I actually it's, brought that up in my drosh this past Shabbat. Ah, nice. So, salute to you. Much respect, because uh, we were definitely talking about the confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart, and talking about how that's all teshuva and repentance and uh, all sorts of stuff. With because the uh, the whole thing about reciting words of Torah out loud, yeah, you know, and the dynamics of that. So. I did a whole little connection there with all of that. And then I put that particular uh, insight you shared with me in the notes uh, for the Josh. So. Oh, nice. Well, I'm yeah. glad it helps. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, you be hooking up some stuff. So I'm like, oh, yeah, this, <laughs> that one. Well, yeah, I do want all 15 volumes of Likutei Moharan. So because um, I only have the three on Kindle. So. Yeah. Berkashem. You know. I make use of them, of course, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, there's no Jew that I know of and that would be jealous of the Christian life. Rubisham? And they don't need to be. No, not at all. If you you're know, thinking it, about it, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like Shaul says in here in Romans, you know, heaven forbid. Quite the contrary, it's by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. Moreover, mm-hmm. if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, and what riches is Shaul referring to? The riches of the Torah. Mm. The understanding of the rabbis, you know, Talmud. You know, all the commentaries. That is, if Israel's being placed temporarily 
in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles, is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring to them? Shabim idatum is the word used for their transgression. Because I'm looking up the word for the stumbling. Oh, okay. Ma'adu. Ma'ad. All right. Got my Hebrew word. Keep going. I'm just uh, um, in the background over here just trying to track down these words. Those words remind me of Avodah Zerah. Um, um, oh, yeah. In uh, Avodah Zerah 4a, 3. Mm -hmm. The Gemara cites an incident pursuant to Rabbi's principle that God punishes Israel for its sins in small increments rather than all at once. Rabbi Bahu praised Rav Safra to the heretics, saying that he was a great man. They therefore exempted Rav Safra from taxes for 13 years. One day they found Rav Safra and said to him, it is written, you alone did I love from all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will hold you to account for all your iniquities. The heretics asked, does one possessed with hostility turn against his beloved? Of course not. Rasafra kept quiet and did not reply at all. So they tied a, a kerchief around his throat and were causing him distress. Rav Abahu came and found them doing this to Rav Safra and said to them, why are you causing him distress? They responded, did you not tell us that he is a great man? Yet hmm. he could not tell us the interpretation of this verse. Based on your recommendation, we accepted him from taxes for all, for all these years, and we see now that he is a fraud. Rav Abahu said to them, I said that he was a great scholar only with respect to the Tanaic literature. Did I say that he was a great person with respect to scripture? Thus my recommendation stands and you were correct in exempting him from the tax. They said to Rav Abahu, what is different about, about you that you know scripture, whereas Rav Safra does not know scripture? He said to them, we who frequently visit with you, take it upon ourselves to delve into the study of scripture so that we will be able to answer your questions. They, the rabbis like Rav Sefer, do not delve into scriptures because they do not often speak with you. The heretic said to Rav Abahu, then you tell us the interpretation of this verse. He told them, I will illustrate the matter for you with a parable. To what is this matter analogous? To a person who is collecting debts from two people, one of whom is his friend and one of whom is his enemy. He collects the debt from his 
friend little by little, whereas he collects the entire debt from his enemy at one time. Hmm. So rereading this verse in Romans, moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this, since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. We're seeing this in our day. Yeah. Now, if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Kind of like some, the woman when she does the separation of dough. Yeah. Because that's what actually causes the challah that we say the bracha over to be, you know, the kedusha that it has, the kedusha that it will have comes from that little piece she separates out. Yeah. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of the, of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember, you are not supporting the root. The root is supporting you. So you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. This is a warning. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. That's written in there? Yes. This is the CJB. This dispensationalism, what? <laughs> Can you reread that verse? Okay, for if God did not spare, this is Romans uh, 10 21. Or, yeah. For 11 21, excuse me. Yeah. Okay. If God did not spare the natural branches, speaking of the Jewish people, he certainly won't spare you. <laughs> okay. That's a warning to the so-called church. They're they're violating this. They're 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 standing in total spiritual arrogance to this. I I can't, man. <laughs> but we were there. <laughs> yeah, we were once there. You, we were, were once were. Yeah, We were once afar off. 
Really? You just went there? Yes. <laughs> Man. This chapter in Ephesians 2 and 3 are very clear about, about the grafting in regarding the, co the covenants of promise that Hashem has made. And they're all a singular covenant. They're all, all the various covenants are built on one another. All I got to say is they ain't never heard the letters being taught like this. <laughs> That's, wow. Hmm. So, you know, the word for uh, stumbled is uh, mem ayin dalit, which if you rearrange the letters, Ain Mim Dalit, you get the word for standing, like Amida. <laughs> so basically, what we're looking at is rearranging the letters for the word for standing, as in standing firm. You know, because during the Amida, we stand with our feet together, just like the angels, you know, and things like that. So Israel has been given to stumbling so that you know the nations could come in in other words the um i don't know everything's been kind of like shaken up to make space you know kind of like if you put all your rocks in a jar and you want to add more rocks shake it up and move it around a little bit yep um Now, Shaul goes on to say, so take a good look at God's kindness and his severity <laughs> on the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness toward you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So, the chesed and the gavurah. Which side do you want to be on or keep yourself on, you know? Um, this brings up something else as well. I mean, you know, the church practically goes out of its way to point out Israel's stumblings. But, you know, but in Jewish law, we don't get to repeat something, even if it's true about someone. Right. They have no business doing what they're doing. They invite judgment, Gavura, upon them. This is why the church has so many problems. Mm. It's just one aspect, you know, of how Hashem is trying to get them to wake up, you know. Um. It reminds me of when I always get uh, told by different people who uh, catch themselves doing something that they don't want to be seen doing. And they go, don't judge me. And I go, too late. Because <laughs> in Judaism, we're supposed to judge each other favorably, you know? Yeah. And so I've been like, I don't care what I see you doing. I want to judge you favorably, you know? So I always have to explain what I mean by too late. But <laughs> they just kind of look at me like, wait, what? But seriously, like, that's, that's the model that we're supposed to set for the nations. Quit doing that, you know? Yeah. 
you can be like literally outright blatantly doing something you know you shouldn't be doing. For instance, I think in Halakha it was brought up about this. Like if you see a Jew coming out of like an unkosher restaurant, you know, like assume the best. Like maybe they went in there to use the restroom, you know, maybe they needed a cup of water, you know, like try to come up with ways to justify, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like, don't just go, oh, my gosh, can't believe they're doing this. Which they brought up the whole funny joke about uh, the rabbi who saw his student doing that. And the rabbi was like, hey, I saw you eating there the whole time. He's like, oh, I was under rabbinic supervision. So it must have been kosher. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was like, that's not what that means. (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) Anyway. Uh, to to reread this part, traditionally Christianity has considered that all Jews everywhere are somehow jealous of the Christian life. With some exceptions, that has not proved to be the case. Certainly all Israel is not jealous in any way of Christianity, although Christianity is rightfully secure in knowing their Messiah. Israel is content to wait for their own rather than be jealous of Christians. Which begs the question again, how can the followers of Messiah make Israel jealous? <laughs> you know what's Maybe crazy we'll... though is the uh, the Mashiach has been invalidated by Christians. Mm-hmm. You know, making him deified, uh, disrupting the unity of Hashem. Yeah. You know, all these kinds of things like no one's going to be jealous of a, a non-kosher messiah. Well, I, I wouldn't be. So, you know, at that point, you might as well go to Shabbatai Zabi, you know, and be like, all right, here we go. We're done. Let's go to the Alam Haba. I like the next sentence, though. <laughs> yeah, maybe we're focusing on the wrong meaning for the word jealousy. The word Paul uses in Romans 10 and 11 is the Greek word perazelu, uh, which literally means from zeal or envy, which <laughs> is the point that you brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. There's also the phrase kinati letzion. I am zealous for Zion. Mm-hmm. That's a Shem saying that. Mm-hmm. Kind of going back to uh, Pincus and Moshe, who acted with Hashem's seal, not their own. I think this is the real point that we need to expound on, is that we need to act in the zeal of Hashem. Not our own. Keeps it from being subjected. Yeah. And how, how can we do this? How can we accomplish this? By continuing to study Torah like we do, like the Jewish people study Torah, which is what I've been doing for the last six years. Amen. Chazak, chazak, chazak. Yes. And 
getting deeper and deeper and just keep going. Don't be afraid. You know? Yeah. Because, you know, Hashem's going to be right there when you need him most. When you come across something that just, like, blows your top off. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That, that is just so profound that you just wind up just meditating on it, taking it in, you know? Yeah. And then living it out as they do. That's right. Um, that's my estimation of it, what I've come up with. Um So, yeah, it's a problem in English, you know, because in English they tend to di diverge jealousy and envy and zeal. Where, in fact, right. that one Hebrew word has multiple meanings and encompasses yeah. those words. Right. Um, Which in English, those words are completely different. <laughs> They're worlds apart. Yeah, it, it kind of neuters the Hebrew word in a sense. You know, so some words in my book they, in Hebrew should not even be translated mm. the way it is translated into English because you're just going to lose too much. Wow. I mean, that's the potency of the Torah is in, in an example like that, you know, where it's a, a consuming fire. Because after all, they are the, the the building blocks of creation. The 22 letters and the 10 sephira, the 32 paths to wisdom. Right. Um, so in English, seal and envy are not even remotely relate, related, but in Greek, the same word can be used for both. Just... Like in Hebrew, see, this is where Shaul's um, knowledge of Greek grammar and the Hebrew help him out. <laughs> in the Greek, he is able to convey a Torah concept that, that is Hebraic. That's 10th of Tibet right there. Because remember how the 70 sages, they had to uh, translate the Torah into Hebrew or into Greek. Yeah. And there's a lot of things you can't like right off the bat, you know, uh, Bereshit did not create Hashem. Because if you read the Hebrew and try to translate that into Greek, you know, you have Bereshit, Bara, Elohim. And it's just like, uh, so the way Greek would see it is Bereshit is some entity that creates and namely God, you know, it's just kind of like, how do you translate that? What's interesting about that word, you can break it down into Bara, uh, Resh, the head, Shait, uh, which is Six. Um, 
to a couple of others, um, not quite at, off the tip of my tongue, but um, there are many permutations to that word. Oh yeah, in the that's a whole Josh itself. Oh yeah, I mean, the Arizal gets into it on that parsha in his in his commentary. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, I like Rashi's comment on Bereshit, you know, 1-1. One, one. It's the beginning of his way. Why doesn't the Torah start with the greatest commandment of all? So that's the question that Rashi asked. Why? Why doesn't it? But he just simply says it's the beginning of his way. And Israel being his crop. Ooh. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. You brought up the Septuagint. So he, in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, Perizelu, uh, is most often rendered from the Hebrew as Kana, zeal. It is possible that Gentile believers could be making Israel zealous. <laughs> that, beloved, is what I believe is happening and will happen to an ever greater extent as more and more Gentiles follow their master, Yeshua, into reverence for and obedience to the commandments of the Almighty. Boom. That's, this is why we're grafted in. This is part of the work of Mashiach. John 15, all day. Yeah. You know, it, I am the vine, you are the branches. Without me, you cannot do anything. Um... For if you abide in me, I will abide in you. Mm -hmm. um, he who loves me, if you love me, keep my commandments. He that keeps my commandments is the one that loves me. And remain in my love. And I will manifest myself to him. Um. See first John two. Oh, the one about fellowship with the Shem is walking in the midst boat. The way we can be sure we know him is if we are obeying his commands. Anyone who says I know him but isn't obeying his commands is a liar. Shaker. Mm -hmm. The truth is not in him. Are we talking Nakash in Genesis 3? Yes. And what does the Nakash... Okay, so now you got that going. You went there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what did the Nakash do with Eve? How did he phrase it? His deceptive words. Did Hashem really say... 
actually, um, well, I'll wait for you to come back, but I'll, I'll read more of this. But if someone keeps on doing what he says, that truly the love for God has been brought to its goal in him, this is how we are sure that we are united with him. A person who claims to be continuing in union with him ought to conduct his life the way he did. And that is First John 2, 3 through 6. And then in chapter 3, verse 7 of 1 John, children, don't let anyone deceive you. It is the person that keeps on doing what is right, who is righteous, just as God is righteous. The person who keeps on sinning is from the adversary, because from the very beginning, the adversary has kept on sinning. It was for this very reason that the Son of God appeared to destroy these doings of the adversary. No one who has God as his father keeps on sinning because the seed planted by God remains in him. That is, he cannot continue sinning because he has God as his father. Here's how one can distinguish clearly between God's children and those of the adversary. Everyone who does not continue doing what is right is not from God. Likewise, anyone who fails to keep loving his brother is not from God, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should each love one another and not be like uh, <coughs> Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his own brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be amazed, brothers, if the world hates you. We, for our part, know that we have passed from death to life because we keep loving the brothers. The person who fails to keep on loving is still under the power of death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. The way that we have come to know love is through his loving, having laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Yeah, it's continuing to read First John uh, chapter 3. Uh, if someone has worldly possessions and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can he be loving God? Children, let us love not with words and talk, but with actions and in reality. Here's how we will know that we are from the truth and will set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts know something against us, God's greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts know nothing against us, we have confidence in approaching God. An encouragement for Rosh Hashanah there. We don't shrink back at his coming. 
that whatever we ask for, we receive from him because we are obeying his commands and doing the things that please him. This is the command that we are to trust in the person and power of his son, Yeshua the Messiah, and to keep loving one another, just as he commanded us. Those who obey his commands remain united with him and he with them. Here is how we know that he remains united with us by the spirit whom he gave us. Where were you just reading? That was first John chapter three. And I started okay. reading at verse six. Or gotcha. Actually verse uh, seven. Because you were talking about the whole uh, hatred part. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool because we literally read in the in the gospel accounts that the Messiah told us he who hates his brother in his heart has already committed murder. murder. Yeah. And so it's like really cool that his, his Talmud like echoes that, you know, later on in life as he wrote this letter. Yeah, he's expanding now by Ephraim 19. You should mm -hmm. not hate your brother in your heart. Panimiut Hatorah. How cool is that, man? Like Panimiut Hatorah, like the inner face, the inner dimensions of Torah. Like that's already was happening with the uh, the gospel accounts and with the apostolic letters. Yep. So cool. <laughs> Amen. I mean, you know, it's <clears throat> beloved. There are people on three sides now that tell Gentile believers that they should not be crossing those Jewish lines of identity. <laughs> Normative Judaism considers it an abomination for Gentiles to dress, eat, and live as Jews. Some in Christianity mock those same Gentiles as Judaizers. I've been I've been the recipient of that one. Happened to me last week. I yeah. got told you can't be a black Jew. Stop <laughs> Judaizing. There was Good some man. guy on Facebook who commented on my post. It's terrible. You know, man. Judaizers and legalists. Okay, so legalist, legalism. We should define we should define that one because there's confusion regarding it. Really? Yeah. Christianity thinks that it is legalism to keep the Torah. You know, to do what the rabbis tell you. <laughs> but this is where you need to bring out Josephus and Sadducees versus Pharisees. Uh huh. What they don't understand or what they don't look at is the historicity of the first century, the master's words, like, for example, Matthew 15. Mm -hmm. You know, where Yeshua is not condemning their tradition per se because he knows that it's not entirely without merit 
but rather he is confronting their personal subjective interpretation of what the sages have said. And mind you, again, the historicity, this is during the Talmudic period. Yeah. This, this has to be kept in mind when you read the Basora, the Gospels. Because our master is repeating the words of the sages of blessed memory. And the two primary schools of thought at that time, just before the days of our master, were Shemai and Hillel. Yeah. And the way that I read it and what I've read from uh, Shemai and Hillel in the Talmud is that Yeshua tends to strike right down the middle at times with what he says in the Gospels. He kind of what actually what he does, he blends the two together. But there are times where he does take the side of Shemai on a halakhic matter. And there are times when he takes Hillel's position. And in the Alampaba, we will be more on Shemai than Hillel. Yeah, the stricter. Um, why? Because we won't be dealing with this, the Basar. The flesh, the Yetzirah, which is likely Shemai's point, drawing on the Midrash, where mm. Hashem will take the Yetzirah and he will slaughter it. Wow. So, according to Oxford languages, when it comes to theology, legalism is about depending on moral law rather than on personal religious faith. So legalism and the theological sense has nothing to really do with <laughs> being Torah observant. Because the pretext is you don't want to do the Torah anyway so therefore, if you're doing the Torah, you're legalist, you're a Judaizer. Mm -hmm. But the actual definition really is excessive adherence to law or formula. Excessive. You know, so now you get into, well, who determines what's excessive? And what's the standard for being excessive? Yeah, where are you deriving your standards from? I know where I derive mine from. Yeah. I have no doubt of its divinity. Christianity says that they believe in the infallibility of the word of God. Then why don't mm. you accept the Torah as the divine revelation of Hashem? Then? Well, that sounds like self-incrimination. Because if the word of God is infallible, but yet the Torah is denied or rejected, then you're saying that's not the word of God. Are you calling Hashem a liar, which the spies basically did?
So it gets awkward. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in that awkward position anymore because we used to be. I would ask my pastor my uh, a very awkward question and I would not get an answer. Because <laughs> he just flat out did not know. Four years in seminary or in a Bible college and you cannot answer this question. What does that say about your education? Wow. That hurts. <laughs> some people put a lot of a lot of stock in their education. I can't tell you how many times for me, um, I always bring that up, especially since I don't have any uh, educational accreditations. Because, you know, I'm doing podcasts and, and teaching droshes and things like that. And it's just like, so what school did you go to? What paper do you have? What certification do you have? And I'm always like, before that question even comes up, everybody needs to know, I don't have it. <laughs> I, I don't either. And I would come, <clears throat> I would further say that Hashem does not care about that. Oh, he does not care about your position. He does not care about your title. Wow. He cares more about the fact that you serve him without expectation of anything in return. We are a vessel for Torah dissemination. Goodness. This is what the sages were. Yeah, because, uh, you know, some of them were winemakers and honey. <laughs> they had their living. They had their parnasa. Honey dealers. Yeah. Like, and like every generation, including our own, when we do Havdalah, we're asking Hashem for parnasa because everything comes from him. And now, see, this, this alludes to Rosh Hashanah, which we're about to observe. We want Parnassa for the year coming. 5782. It doesn't matter what's going on in the world right now. As much as you and I disapprove of how uh, our president has handled the exit from Afghanistan. Mm hmm. And rightfully, it does concern me, you know, but what concerns me even more is my service to Hashem. Because paying attention to stuff like that is not going to gain me any merit in the world to come. Zip, not a bingo. <laughs> Hashem does not care about it. Why? Because he's orchestrating all the events. Why do I need to worry about it? Yeah. The world itself is caught up in it. They're worried about the next day. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? You know, They don't know Hashem like you and I do. Mm -hmm. You know, and worse yet, they don't want to be accountable. They don't want to be held to a standard. You know... <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I've been ostracized and been called a Judaizer because I disseminate Torah and I encourage anyone that's in the church that maybe 
that may have come to that place that my wife and I did, that you did, and that everyone else in the Strictly Torah group has come to, and that Hashem is bringing them in to the covenants of promise. Mm -hmm. Whereas before we weren't. You know, it's, I admit, I spent a lot of time thinking about it. You know, what, what was, what does it really mean to be in the covenant? What are my mm -hmm. responsibilities? What does Hashem expect of me? What does, you know, it's an active relationship. But if you keep saying, oh, Jesus is my little talisman, my little personal savior, so to speak, he does everything for me, then where is, where are you at, you know? Wow. He's doing everything for you. So you never enter into fellowship with the gym yourself because someone else is doing it for you. Spiritual laziness. And Itaki, yeah, Itaki Esco makes a very strong point that the generation in the first uh, Golas and Mitzrayim were too dependent on the merit of the fathers. Oh, Rather than acquiring their own merit, they could have easily done that. Even in the midst of an extremely, extremely idolatrous culture, like, you know, in Egypt, they could have. Wow. They could have done tikkun. They could have brought, brought rectification. For a lot of things. <laughs> the 10 utterances. <laughs> yeah. Um, the illicit behavior of Adam HaRishon, but we only live for so long. By the decree of the heavenly court. Yeah. This is why you know, people ask, well, why do the good die young and the wicked people live for so long? It's because, and I expressed this to my wife regarding her twin sister who passed away this year. Now it came time for her. She did what she was supposed to do. Right. That's in this week's Torah portion, by the way. The reason why Moshe had to die is he completed his mission. Yeah. So, you know, something to take comfort in, you know. If you have a loved one that passed away, you know, they did what Hashem wanted them to do. Which means we're still here. We still have our duty mission. to perform. We still have tikkun and rectification to make. Uh, Mendel Kesson points out that Rosh Hashanah is also about the evaluation of our tikkun. Oh, wow. A mission report, huh? Yeah. Sit rep.
Yeah, that one sank in for me. Yeah. I think of it as a report card. Okay, Rick, so you're doing great in this part of Tacoon, but not so good here. So work on this next year, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's hitting me now as far as uh, helping me to understand to not take for granted the things that I'm invested in doing that I know I'm supposed to be doing. You know, like sometimes you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm doing it. You know, I got it. Cool. <laughs> and then you're like, wait, should I be really this into it? And it's like when you think about things like this is like, what's your mission? You know, what makes a good soldier is them like being devout and doing that. Diligence. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> when we were in California back in uh, April, for my sister's, uh, my wife's sister's uh, funeral. Um, and I was reciting Mourner's Kaddish for her. Um, I knew that's why I was there to do that, to bring rectification for her Nefesh, repair. Because in a, in a meditation, not long before that, when I was listening to a Mystical Kabbalah by David Cooper, mm -hmm. one of the meditations is you encounter other souls. And hers was the one I encountered. I actually was in a... I had no expectations of result, of ambition, or anything like that but I encountered her and we had a conversation and she told me that God took me out of the world because I did what he wanted me to do, but she had her regrets that she could not continue. Wow. And I said, don't let regret consume you. Hashem took you out of the world because you completed your task, that which he gave you to do. Just like he did with Moshe. He brought mm -hmm. Israel to the cusp of Eretz Israel. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's a powerful meditation. And it's one I've learned. I, I, I'm still kind of digesting it maybe mm -hmm. all months later mm -hmm. become part of who I am um, but, but again this is another way to provoke these people to zeal wow a Gentile Kabbalist who would have thought you know yeah. <laughs> you know yeah you know I got to uh, visit my mom and baby sister today who haven't converted or anything. And uh, we were kind of talking about some of our family roots and uh, history. Found out I'm part Cuban. <laughs> really? I'm like, wait, what? 
Me? <laughs> little, little me? <laughs> but among all that, my great-grandmother was into Gematria. Nice. And so numbers is like sprinkled throughout there because my mom loves that stuff. And then my baby sister was like, okay, well then let's start throwing around numbers. And so she started doing it. My mom started answering stuff. I started answering stuff. <laughs> and uh, one of the coolest things is they were looking at uh, nines and fives. And um, my mom was born in 59 and my sister was born in 95. <laughs> so they were both like, oh yeah, look at that, look at that. You know. <laughs> so anyway, it was just it was just a really cool thing to uh to just think about, you know, like as you say, with you being a Kabbalist and uh Gamatra has totally been my thing. And then it's all like, oh yeah, that's that's in your history. <laughs> I'm like, that's crazy. Oh boy. Yeah. Um yeah, just so much, and we're just at the tip of the iceberg, you know. Right. That's, that's the part that always gets me. I'm just barely scratching the surface, you know, of the immense riches that Shaul puts in Romans 11. <laughs> well, I think Kabbalah and Gematria are a pretty good combo, so... <laughs> yeah, well, same here. I, I have a big thing for Gematria, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, wine in, secrets out, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Gematria for wine, as you know, is seven. It's so seven. You know? Yeah. Same uh, as wine. <laughs> Um, so let's see. See, within Messianic Judaism, there are now those that use inviting language to Gentiles, but in the end, discourage and even forbid them from the Jewish quote unquote commandments. What a shame. I believe that the best testimony of the gospel is that Jew and Gentile are made one. One king, one people, one Torah. This is likely one of the main reasons, I think, of how fractured the Messianic movement is. You have some congregations that really embrace the, the rabbis, the commentaries. Mm -hmm. While on the other hand, you have those that are mixing a certain measure of Judaism with Christianity, and that right there is the recipe for disaster, as far as I'm concerned. Because then you're you're just confusing yourself. You're straddling the fence. <laughs> you know, it's... They forget that Mashiach is was an Orthodox Jew. Yeah. And so were his 12. Yes. 
I had this discussion with my Huruta this past Thursday. We were talking about this. You know, and we went on for like an hour and a half about it, you know, and I, I expressed to him how I how I see Hebrew roots behave in their so-called observance. They keep mixing Christianity and thereby bring confusion. Or when you get asked, oh, so you're Jewish? It's like, yes. Just like Paul, just like Peter, just like John. <laughs> yeah, that'll change up a conversation. Really quick. <laughs> you know, it's... You know, you're... you're they're behaving like Noahites. To be honest, I mean, you know, this one guy I know from uh, the shul I used to go to in, in Burnsville, uh, Tabernacle of David. Um, I mean, we've had some good discussions, you know. I still bring the commentaries, you know. I quote from the Talmud, you know. You know, one of my favorite quotes, and, you know, of course, I wrote a Zara 11a about Ankylos, you know. Yeah. I think that really makes the case for Gentile inclusion into the covenant. I think that's a very strong case for it, you know, a reminder, you know. Um, that that's where I, our identity lies. And I would continue to say that the study of these uh, commentaries from Bereans online is what really grounded me, grounded my identity in Mashiach. You know, I'm at a point where, you know, I'm pretty much unshakable, you know. <laughs> yeah, when I observe those in Hebrew roots who are easily shaken, you know, the last time my fellowship with them was at, you know, one, the home of one of the leaders of that congregation. And, and it was on Rosh Hashanah. Which they really? Were, yeah. And the thing about it is, is that they refer to it as Yom Teruah, which is fine. But the problem was they're violating halakha by bringing in a, a kudu shofar. Uh-oh. I brought my ram's horn because I know the halakha. You can only blow a ram's horn on this day. Yep. But the real halakha is that you have to listen to it. Man. Psalm 86. Blessed are they who know the sound of the shofar. It's a, it's a mitzvah to listen to the blowing of the shofar. Not necessarily to blow it. Even that's part of the mitzvah. That's uh, Numbers 29. Man. It shall be a day of shofar blowing. Um, 
Before we move on, I have a uh, Zohar I'd love to share. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Bereshit, section one. This is on Sino Zohar, uh, 239B through 240A. We just talked about sowed. We talked about wine. You know, the, uh, the secrets of the Torah, the wine of the Torah. So, and also, we mentioned the kindness and the severity of Hashem in Romans 11. So this ties all of those points together. And it's connected to Parsha Vayera during the plagues, because there were 10 of them. And it says Hashem used the 10 supernal crowns to uh, confound and uh, confuse the Egyptians. Because, you know, Egypt, there were 10 measures of magic given to the world. Egypt took nine. So they think, oh, yeah, we got this. But Hashem's like, actually, no, you don't. So anyway, it says, he hath washed his garments in wine. Even from the time of creation, the reference being to the coming of the Mashiach on earth. Wine indicates the left side, severity, givor, and the blood of grapes, which is the left side below. The Messiah is destined to rule above over the forces of idolatrous nations and to break their power above and below. We may also explain that as wine brings joyfulness, yet typifies judgment. You know, the four cups of Pesach. So the Mashiach will bring gladness to Israel, but judgment to the Gentiles. The spirit of God, which hovered over the face of the waters, Genesis 1-2, is the spirit of the Messiah. And from the time of the creation, he washed his garments in celestial wine. Oh, I just thought of the wedding at Cana. Oh, turning the water into wine. Oh, my goodness. Do you know where that water came from? That he turned to wine? Where? From a mikvah pool. Did not come from Saloa. As far as I know, yeah, it wasn't in the Galil, but you still had okay. mikvah pools around synagogues. Right. So it didn't have to be from Saloa, but no, nonetheless, being from a mikvah. But can you imagine how good that wine is from a place of purity? <laughs> I mean, Water that no one has immersed themselves in. Which? Turn, turn to wine. 
and there were six jugs. Six days of creation. creation. Just what so you read from the Zohar there. <laughs> so here's the thing on that. The teachings of the Talmud Humash, right? The green yeah. one. Says that the first time the word mikvah is used as, as far as the definition of gathering of the waters is during the six days of creation. So therefore, anytime we go to a mikvah, we're immersing in primordial waters. And we just read about the celestial garments of wine. Which has to do about the, the rectification for the shattering of the vessels. I mean, <laughs> where, where did the water come from? You know, it's now that commentary is coming to my head again. <laughs> um, um, yeah, they Pink is, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Notice the wording here. Terua Mikra Kodesh. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, there shall be a rest day for you, a remembrance, mm -hmm. a shofar blast a holy convocation. Notice how it's worded. It doesn't say that you blow the shofar. It says shofar blast. Inferring that you are hearing it. And similarly in Parashat Pincus, it is written, and I'm reading from Shivile Pincus for um, Rosh Hashanah, uh, but me bar 29.1, you know, Mikra Kodesh, a holy convocation. You know, what do, what do we do when we walk in Shabbat, the Kiddush? That Shabbat is the first of the holy convocations. Right, Mikra Kodesh. Yes. You know, ba, okay, so in Bemibar 29, Ba Hodesh Hashvi Bayakad, La Hodesh Mikra Kodesh, Iye Lekem Ko Malakat, Avuda Lo Taasu, Yom Terua Yiye Lekem, in the seventh month. It's basically worded the same, it's a repetition. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, there shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall do no laborious work. It shall be a day of shofar blowing for you. The explanations of, you know, concerning the deeper meaning of this mitzvah, the wonderful allusions, the tremendous benefits, and its mystical effects are endless. They abound in the words of Kazal in the Gemara and the Midrash and in the Zohar HaKadosh. In both our earlier and later commentaries, in the writings of the Arizal and in the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov and his pupils of blessed memory, therefore David Hamelik lavished 
his highest praise upon Israel for seeking and delving into the mystery underlying the blowing of the shofar to Helam 89.16. Ashrei ha'am yodea teruah. Adonai be'or paneka. Praised are those people who know the significance of the shofar blast. <laughs> Hashem, in the light of your countenance, they walk. The importance of the mitzvah of blowing shofar, inspiring fear and trembling in the heavens and on earth is expressed beautifully in the stirring poetic words of the divine Rabbi Amnon of Mainz in the sacred tefillah, Netanei Tokef, which we recite in the Musaf service on Rosh Hashanah, the great shofar, Ube Shofar Gadol Itakea, the great shofar will be sounded and a still small voice will be heard. <laughs> angels will hasten a trembling and terror will seize them and they will say behold it is the day of judgment to muster the heavenly host of judgment for they cannot be vindicated in your eyes in judgment all mankind will pass before you like members of the flock and I was thinking uh, Joel the great and terrible day of Hashem. Right. Um, Hebrews. For of a certain fearful looking for judgment. We will begin to shed some light on this subject by introducing an insight from the Ruach HaKodesh of our blessed sages regarding the incredible power and effect of the shofar. Um, Rosh Hashanah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu functions as the Supreme King sitting atop his heavenly throne of judgment, judging all creation. In this capacity, he is referred to as Elohim. At, at its heart, this is what part of the Nakash's deception with Eve. He came to her and said, Hath, did God actually say, he said God. He didn't say Hashem Elohim. Oh, right. Yeah. So he said Elohim. As if to intimate that he is on the throne of Kisei uh, Hadin. And I have to ask, you know, did that happen? On Rosh Hashanah, which is why we refer to this day as Yom Hadin, because Hashem dealt with Adam and Hava on this day. It sure did. It was the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Yeah. Well, uh, the first day going into the second day, because the second day would have been the first Shabbat. Yeah. But we should have been kicked out of the garden on, on that day, but the Shabbat saved us. And then we got kicked out on the third day, which is crazy to think about the fast of Gedalia being yeah. the third day of Tishrei. 
you know, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, El Kings, the name associated with uh, Midat Hadin. That's crazy. That's what the serpent used. However, in okay, so in the merit of blowing the shofar, Hakadosh Baruch Hu rises, so to speak, from the throne of judgment and moves over to the throne of Rakhamni. Thus, he judges the world with divine mercy. As such, he is referred to as Havaya, <laughs> coupling the name with Elohim. So what's crazy about that is through the shofar blowing, we're actually bringing favorable judgment for the nations because we're we're moving judgment and severity into a more kindness and uh, more of a, a chesed. And this is for the whole world to be judged. Yeah. So the importance of hearing the shofar takes on a whole nother dimension. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's the meat on how rocks and meat. Um, so the Midrash depicts this phenomenon as follows in Baikur Rabbah 29.3. Rabbi Yehuda, the son of Rabbi Nachman, opened with the following pastuk in Tehillim 47.6. Elohim has ascended with the sound of Teruah. Avaya, with the sound of the shofar. At first, Akadosh Baraku occupies the throne of justice, Gabura, or Dean, embodying the attribute of Dean. Hence, the Pasuk initially employs the name Elohim, indicating justice. Yet, when Yisrael take their shofars in hand and blow, he vacates the throne of justice and moves over to the throne of mercy. Hence, the pursuit changes to the name Havaya, the name of mercy. Full of mercy, he treats them mercifully, transforming the attribute of justice into the attribute of mercy during the seventh month. The month of the scales. Yep. And what is it written? And what is the Pasuk in Proverbs state? I believe it's uh, 13 1. A false balance is what? Toliva to Adonai, but a just weight is his delight. Wow. And you know what's interesting too about the ram's horn that connects us to the Akeda. You know, so like the, the ram that was offered up. Yeah. The mystical aspect of the halakha to blow a ram's horn. So by not using... See, this is why oh. I stress to the Hebrew rooters, they're bringing it down an energy that is not supposed to be brought down in the first place. By not taking, by not grabbing the ram's horn and blowing it, you are not associating 
it with mercy. Goodness. By using any other shofar, not halakhically approved on Rosh Hashanah, you are not bringing mercy. Wow. Doesn't you are say- keeping Hashem on the Kisei Hadin. That's a Selah right there. Yeah, I read this whole thing this week, and now that we're getting into this, you know, because it brings <laughs> up the Evan Shetia, the foundation stone, which is yeah, so you know. crucial to this, you know. And again, yeah. at the site of the Evan Shetia, his impulse was to create the world with Mina Hadi. <laughs> I had an intriguing idea in honor of Rosh Hashanah. I would like to present to our royal audience a novel explanation concerning the unique power and efficacy of the shofar. As mentioned, in the merit of blowing shofar, Akadosh Baruch rises from the throne of Dean and occupies the throne of Rakhamim. Let us introduce a fantastic concept in the Yishmak Moshe by Yetze. Brings down in the name of the Sefer Kavod Kachamim on the Agados in the Talmud Yerushalmi, Barakot 4.22, related to the Pasuk Tehillim 50, verse 2. Metziyam Mikalel Yofi Elohim Hofia, out of Zion, consummation and beauty, Elohim appeared. Why does David Habmelech associate the name of Dean Elohim with Zion? To explain this association, it refers to the Mishnah, Yama 52b, when the Kohen Gadol entered the Kodesh HaKedoshim on Yom HaKippurim, he placed the Keteret between the two staves of the Aron. <laughs> And if you remember, Kabbalistically, the Ark did not occupy any physical space. Yep. And also the stays protruded. They pushed the curtain out. The Keparet. And what does it what does it what does it look like? Yep. This is in Shir Hasharim. Talking about the bosom of his beloved. Yeah, exactly. So he placed the Keteret between the two staves of the Aron. Yet another Mishnah, Ibit 53b, teaches us that in the second Beit HaMikdash, where there was no Aron, Yeah, when there was no Aron, a stone. Evan Hataya Shem Memot, or yeah, Neveim Rishonim Be Shetia, see, Hate Hate Nikrat. 
a stone was there from the times of the early Nevi'im. It was called Shetiyah. This is consistent with what the Rambam writes in Hilko Beit Ha uh, Bakira 401. There was a stone in the western part of the Kodesh HaKedoshim upon which the Aron rested. The Gemara in Ibed 54b explains why it was called Evan Shetiyah, because the world was founded from it. Hmm. This coincides very nicely with the opinion the world was created from Zion. For we have learned in Ebaresa, Rabbi Eliezer says the world was created from its midpoint. In other words, the creation of the world started from the site of the Evan Shetiyah, the foundation stone. In the Kodesh HaKedoshim, which is the center and midpoint of the world, the creation expanded from there to all four corners of the earth. You substantiate this fact with the Pasuk, Metzion Mikalel Yifi Elohim Hofia Mimenu Mokalel Yifi Shel Olam out of Zion consummation and beauty Elohim appeared from it. Zion, the beauty of the world was consummated. In other words, the creation was initiated from the site of the Beit Hamikdash in Zion. That's why it's a microcosm of creation. Right. Now we're familiar with Rashi's comment in the in the name of the Midrash, Bereshit 1-1, the opening pasuk of the Torah employs the name Elohim rather than Havaya. This indicates that the creator initially intended to create the world based on the Midah of Deen, judgment, for he foresaw, however, that the world could not survive based on this strict standard. Therefore, he preferentially partnered with the Mida of Rakamim, with the Mida of Dean. This partnership and preference for the Mida HaRakamim are evident in the Pasuk of Ibid 2.4. Note that this Pasuk, both divine names are employed. Uh, Bayom Asut Adonai Elohim Eretz uh, Ve Shamayim. But the name Rakimim precedes the name of Dean. In other words, the, the four letter name precedes Elohim. Anytime you see that in the Tanakh, the Torah, or the, or the Tanakh, you know it's a said. Gotcha. You know it's kindness. You know it's Rakimim. Right. So again, I stress the halakha of the ram's horn like the rabbis do. You're not bringing hased, rakamim, kindness, mercy by not by not by blowing a shofar other than a ram's horn, especially in relation to the akeda. Goodness, I'm cringing because. Previous community I've been in was all like, "Yeah, don't worry about a ram's horn." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, man. It's oh my gosh. So, with this in mind, the Kavod Kachamim proposes a tremendous kiddush. He says that Hakadosh Baruch Hu's initial plan to create the world based on Midat Hadin 
was not abandoned completely, for we have a fundamental principle in Yeshua 40, verse 8. Faith of our Elokeinu, Yakum Leolam, the word of our God shall stand forever. If you if you're a person who says, "Oh, I believe in the infallibility of the Word of God," then what are you doing saying that the Torah is done away with? By doing so, you put yourself on the side of Dean. Well, that explains where all the fear tactics come from. Yeah, that explains where the spiritual arrogance comes from. Because one of the things I was mentioning uh, in a previous teaching is that, you know, the just speaking from first person, the the religion we came from, it on the surface was like, oh, we're the nicest one, you know, we're friendly, we're welcoming, da 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 da. But the thing is, what and how do you perceive someone? And what perspective do you have for someone who does not believe in the Messiah, Yeshua? Because basically, because you're so wrapped up in that, yeah. you know that outside of the Messiah, everyone's condemned to hell and damnation. So therefore, if someone is going to reject the Messiah, or if they won't listen to your gospel message or whatever, you know, you're like, well, that person's lost and I fear for them. Or, you know, you just kind of feel like you're on better grounds than they are. And that's like, that's never really um, contemplated. You can't just go around going, okay, that person's in, in Yeshua. That person's not in Yeshua. You know, you, you can't deal with people on like that. No, you're being simplistic. And that's what happens. But you're explaining it. That's Dean. That's the side of severity. That's what it looks like. That's how it plays out. Yeah. It's, now that I have read this and we have this understanding, now think, now listen to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only and unique son that everyone who trusts in him may have eternal life instead of being utterly destroyed. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. The side of Dean. But rather so that through him the world might be saved. This is the day we can be saved from ourselves, so does, you know. That's probably the biggest salvation we need. <laughs> you know, it, it's. Save us from ourselves. Oh, my gosh. Because, you know, the Messiah in, um, in last week's Basora portion for Parsha Nitzavim, he says, you know, I won't judge you. The words you speak, they're going to judge you. 
that's intense. So we really do need to be saved from ourselves. And if the word does judge you, it's because you're not obeying him. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but rather so that the, through him the world might be saved. Those who trust in him are not judged. Those who, <laughs> those who do not trust have been judged already in that they have not trusted in the one who is God's only and unique son. Okay, so here we go. We're going to get to the, he's going to get to the nuts and bolts here. Now, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their actions were wicked. For everyone who does evil things hates the light and avoids it so that his actions won't be exposed. This is, pe- this is people hiding behind the curtain of religiosity. You know, if you're hiding behind this curtain, it's not going to last very long or you can't hide behind it because the Torah is often referred to as light. Yeah. It's like living in a glass house. Yeah, you know. But everyone who does what is true comes to the light so that all may see his actions and actions are accomplished through God. You know, and this stems from his conversation with the Nick Demon regarding, you know, the, the new birth. Oh, yeah. Yeah, same chapter. So what's he really getting at? Because on Rosh Hashanah, you're literally given the, uh, the power and the potential to birth a new you. Mm-hmm. Through the power of the Rosh with the blast of the shofar. Which one of the things I was mentioning, I was uh, going through my notes, I found it in the Kedushat Levi. But I know it's exists in other sources that when you have the act of procreation, that the seed comes from the brain of the male. And so in procreating and and bringing forth children into the world, they literally come from the brain of the masculine aspect, which is all about the Roche, which I think is interesting because now you have like the conduit of the shofar being the channel and the canal of the birthing that happens through the head, which we blow the shofar, you know, from our mouth. Yeah. So just all the the implications and the thoughts there was uh, incredible. But yeah, the power of Rosh Hashanah is it gives us the ability to birth a new self. And we have to take all of our intention, all of our prayers, all of the things that we're thinking about and yearning for in our heart and that working, you know, we bring about a new self, 
which is so crazy because who's the one who's born again? Those who are born from above. For you do not know where the wind comes from and where it goes. Yeah. For every one born of the spirit is such. Mm-hmm. And so all of that leads us into John 3.16. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, kind of like going back to verse 4 in that chapter, Nick DeVone said to him, how can a grown man be born? Can he go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? Yeshua answered, Yes, indeed, I tell you that unless a person is born from water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What is born from the flesh is flesh. I think he's talking Yetzer Hurrah here. The Ooh. ambitions, the your self-awareness. Remember, wow. John's gospel is Kabbalah, man. So we have to embrace the so. He's speaking of submergence of ambition, submergence of your awareness of your identity. Apart from the totality of Hashem. When you blow that shofar, you are uniting with the totality of Hashem. You are bringing that energy of the divine into the world. So the mikvah is betul, it's nullification of self. Yes. And Rabbi Trugman was bringing down shofar is shin peru, like the fruitfulness through the shin, which represents the three blasts of the shofar, the shavarim, takia, teruah, because the shen has three points, the three bobs, the three branches, if you will, which are the three types of blasts. And through that, you bring about the fruitfulness, like giving birth. So. Yeah. Which in the mikvah, there's three names of a shem that you immerse yourself into. So the mikvah is a shofar and the word for amniotic fluid is shafir in Hebrew. That's right. Yeah, I remember Yosef bringing that up one time when he studied about it. Um, so that's like a Rosh Hashanah. Well, that amniotic fluid is the primordial waters. Yes. Which is why we can learn the whole Torah and see to the end of the and universe. And he gathered the waters to, into one place. The womb of the mother. Yeah, uniting Nukva with Zeranthim. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So let us elaborate when HaKadosh Baruch Hu created the world from Evan Shetiyah his initial intent was to create it with Midat Hadin. Thus, the Zedekim 
would be worthy of exoneration even based on the strict standard of Dean. This divine intent remains in effect at the original point of creation, at the Evan Shetia in the Kodesh HaKedoshim. Afterwards, however, when When HaKadosh Baruch Hu expanded creation from there to the rest of the world, he recognized that creation could not endure based on the standard of Midat Hadin. The vast majority of people require Midat HaRakamim. This prompted HaKadosh Baruch Hu to reconsider and partner the two Midos together. However, Midat HaRakamim was given priority. This then is the message of the Pasuk, Metzion Michalel Yifi Elohim Pofia. In the Beit HaMikdash, where the creation was initiated, the name of Din Elohim is in force. Hence, the Torah opens with the words, Be'erushit Bara Elohim. Initially, the Almighty planned to create the world with Midat Hadin. At that site, his initial plan what his initial plan still exists. This is also the message of the Pasuk in Tehillim 6836. Nora Elohim, you are awesome, Elohim, from your Mikdashim. At the site of the Mikdash, the starting point of creation, the name Elohim representing Midat Hadin is dominant. This summarizes the words of the Kavod Kakamim. Yaakov Avino's astonishment. Surely Hashem is in this place. In, the, in this manner, the Yishmak Moshe goes on to explain the deeper meaning of the following Hesukim and Parashat Vayetze, Bereshit 28.12. Vayichulom. Behine Solem Metzav Artzav Rashu Megia Hashemaima Behine Malake Elohim Olim Bayi Radim bow and he dreamt and behold a ladder was set earthward and its top reached heavenward they expound in the midrash sokar tov to Hume 78 that the ladder in the dream represents the Beit HaMikdash now seeing as Midat Hadin prevails at the site of the Mikdash Yaakov saw in his vision Vehine Malake Elohim the messengers of Elohim, Midats, Hadin, Vayi, Vayi, Varedim, Bo, ascending and descending on it. Furthermore, Yaakov perceived a tremendous Kiddush despite the prevalence of the Malachim of Din, Behine Adonai Netzav, Elav. HaKadosh Baruch Hu stood over him with the name Havaya, Midat HaRakamim, to protect him. 
to convey this point, the Torah says in Ibid 16, Yaakov awoke from his sleep and proclaimed, surely Havaya is in this place. In other words, he was astonished that at the site of the Mikdash, the starting point of creation, where Midat Hadin prevails, the name of Rakamin Havaya also shines bright. So he exclaims, Aveyanoki lo yodati. And I did not know. I thought that only Midat Hadin exists and reigns here in keeping with the Pasuk Nora Elohim. Then since he knew that the place was created with Midat Hadin, he became frightened and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of Elohim. In other words, he perceived the dominance of the name Elohim, Midat Hadin, in that place. Then Yaakov explains, because here, and this is the gate of heaven. Because here in the place of the Mikdash is the gate and starting point of creation, which is created with Midat Hadin. This is the gist of his sacred remarks. Well, I love the aspect of the ladder being the Beit HaMikdash. The Beit HaMikdash being the ladder of Jacob, Mount Sinai. Oh, yeah, I know. That, that's powerful connection, yeah. <laughs> but I like that means that. technically the Beit HaMikdash came <laughs> down and gave us the Torah. Yeah. After the pattern that was shown to you <laughs> in Parashat Teruma, Exodus 25. You were going to say the- something? This is the pattern shown to Moshe of creation. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to skip to the next part because this, you know, this is really good too. Uh, every Rosh Hashanah, the creation is renewed from the site of the Evan Shetiyah. You can read about that in, in Masekhet Moed Katan. Um, in this matter, we will proceed to explain the passage in the Midrash we open with. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu initially occupies the throne of Din, but moves over to the throne of Akamim of Yisrael. Take their shofars in hand and sound them. It appears that we can propose a novel explanation that can be corroborated. On every Rosh Hashanah, HaKadosh Baruch Hu reduced the creation of the world. Therefore, just as he originally initiated the creation of the Evan Shetiyah, in the Kodesh HaKedoshim, similarly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu renews the creation annually on Rosh Hashanah from the exact same location. It's, it's a two-way street. Yeah. Well, what we do here on earth is in the heaven, is in the heavens. And what's in the heavens will be here on earth. Right. So, Yesh Atzmut, that's what yeah. you're talking about. Yeah, the descending Atzmus and the ascending Yesh. We learn from the Kavod Kachamim that the initial spot of creation at the Evan Shatiyah was created with Midat Hadin because HaKadosh Baruch Hu's original attempt was fulfilled there. Therefore, in similar fashion, 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu initially sits on the throne of Dean to judge the world on Rosh Hashanah. However, when Yisrael take their shofars in hand and sound them, HaKadosh Baruch Hu stands up and goes to sit on the throne of Rachamim, so to speak. Let us explain the matter based on the teaching in the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah 16a. <clears throat> Rabbi Abahu said, why do we blow the shofar with a ram's horn? Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, blow before me the shofar of a ram so that I will recall on your behalf the Akedah of Yitzhak, the son of Avraham, and I will consider it as if you bound yourselves before me. Wow. <laughs> Thus we have explicit proof that the purpose of the Tekiat shofar is to elicit the memory and merit of the Akedas Yitzhak, in whose merit the name Havaya presented itself at the site of the Mikdash. The ram's horn being caught in a thicket. I think in that verse, yeah, Genesis 22, 13, in the Hebrew, you see the name Havaya. Yeah, so this is why I say we have cause to rejoice on Rosh Hashanah. This is why. <laughs> this is what I based this on. This so Yom Hadin becoming Yom Hashesi. Yeah. And Yom Kippur seals the deal. Mm. If we do it with Simcha, if we do it as with joy and rejoice in the fact that he has shown such mercy as he does every year at this time. Right. Which is amazing coming out of a lul where the king has been in the field. Yeah. You know, just going over this, you know, we... Um, Go ahead. Yeah. Um, getting back to the rumination. Um, you were going to say something just going over this. We were, we're doing what? Um, we can bring Rakamim, but we got to make sure that we blow the ram's horn, which I do have a ram's horn, as I'm sure you do as well. Actually, um, I don't. I opt out to uh, be the listener because number one, <laughs> I don't know how to blow the shofar, and number two, I don't have a ram's horn. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to do the mitzvah by not doing the mitzvah. <laughs> I mean, this is what you're separating yourself from. You know, us doing, you know, I'm reading on this because I want to bring a deeper soul to this rumination because success <laughs> to provoke zeal cannot you know I think to a certain extent, extent that's happening you know because you know 
we're we're being brought into the covenant, you know, and we're realizing what it means to be in it, and we, and, and which means that we do these things just as they do them. That's part of the definition. You know, it's uh, yeah, it's. Invariably, when less religious Jews observe Gentiles embracing Judaism as a matter of their discipleship to Messiah Yeshua, they are made zealous themselves. As in every case, the commandments of Hashem, when lived out, are the best testimony of our wise God. No, okay, I like this. No number of tracts, sermons, or street corners can compare to this. Hmm. Surely I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as Hashem, my God, commanded me, that you should act according to them in the land which you go to possess. Therefore, be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as Hashem our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon him, and what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are, are, as are in all this Torah which I set before you this day, Devarim 4, 5, and 6. Which totally echoes Parsha Netanvim. Yep. Like, I set before you this day, and then the reference to this day being Rosh Hashanah. Torah commentary. So, Vayilek Moshe Vedaber et Ha Devarim Ha Ilay El Kol Yisrael. Then Moshe went and spoke these words to all Yisrael, Devarim 31 1. Moshe is about to say goodbye. Our year long journey through the Torah is drawing to a close. Like the generation standing on the plains of Moab about to go into the promised land. We have a lot of history behind us. Like them, we have been reminded of our abject failure in faithfully following Hashem. And if that's not enough, we are presented with this week's Parsha to make us feel even worse. At least that's what we are often led to believe. In Christianity, the sermons are replete with this. Oh, how terrible they were. Oh, a dark dispensation, an angry God. You know, you hear that all the time. Oh, we're not under the law. We're under the law of Christ. We're in the dispensation of grace. We can do what we want. Which, you know, when you say that, like we're under the law of Christ. That's furthermore you separating out the oneness of God 
deifying him and estranging him from his father. Oh, yeah. I remember um, that fifth video he did, uh, Restoration of the Breach. Oh, gosh. The father is the Torah. I've come in my father's name, and you do not receive me. Dude, that guy. <laughs> Bringing down some sources, man. Big time. Which, I mean, just. Which he, uh, he did a video about, you know, the people who subscribed to him and everything that's been going on. And he was just like, and I read your comments and I reply to them. And sure enough, I was I was just encouraging him, sending him stuff, and he really replied to my comment. <laughs> like I was just like, okay. Just very beautiful, man. I know like, it's Ahavat Yisrael. Like that is super important. You know, the earth brings forth a living soul. From the Zohar. The kingdom is the oral Torah. The earth is the oral Torah. <laughs> Uniting these two, the, the, you know. I mean, oh man. The seven spirits are the seven lower Sephirot and seven houses of idolatry. <laughs> The, of course, I said it. The Father is the Torah, the kingdom is the earth. Uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Man. Blessed are the peacemakers, they should be called sons of God. Uh, yeah, the six ashrays, which that word means happy are they. That's right. So, I mean, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, Moshe has alternated between outlining the responsibilities of these covenant people and the terrifying prophecies of their future failure and the curses that accompany their sin. If we are not careful, present tense, <laughs> we will fall in the same despicable pit of spiritual snobbery as so many Bible commentators have. So many of history's most notable theologians and commentators have read these passages and concluded that Israel was hard-hearted, but we aren't. Israel was incorrigibly evil, but we aren't. God only put up with Israel to this point in order to provide an example for them, namely how much better off we are now that he is not so mean anymore. Aren't we relieved that we live in a new system where obedience to the Almighty is no longer required? At least not obedience to Jewish law. All in all, they seem to have learned nothing from, quote-unquote, the Old Testament, as they put it, <clears throat> other than the fact that they are glad that they are not Jews living in such a dark dispensation, as some put it. And in that state of spiritual snobbery, they may have missed much of the point. 
And so we have Shaul here. Um, I think I'm going to read that from the CJB. Okay. First Corinthians 10. Oh, snap. 1-12. Okay. For brothers, I do not want you to miss the significance of what happened to our fathers. All of them were guided by the pillar of cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And in connection with the cloud and with the sea, they all immersed themselves into Moshe. Also, they all ate the same food from the Spirit, and they all drank the same drink from the Spirit. For they drank from a Spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock was the Mashiach. Yet with the majority of them, God was not pleased, so their bodies were strewn across the desert. Now these things took place as prefigurative historical events, warning us not to set our hearts on evil things as they did. Don't be idolaters, as some of them were. As the Tanakh puts it, the people sat down to eat and drink, then got up to indulge in revelry. And let us not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did with the consequence that 23,000 died in a single day. What event is Shaul referring to here? That's uh, the the incident at the end of Parsha um, Balak, right? Shatim? Yeah, I'm thinking Pincus. Yeah, because um, it was 3,000 that perished in the golden calf. Yeah. So eight times that many perished in the uh, incident of Shatim, Plains of Moab. Yep. <laughs> so wait, so that was eight times more intense than the golden calf is basically what, what we're saying. Yeah. Which is the significance of Penkis Eight, Shemini, Nadav and Avihu. Right, because he possessed the soul of Nadav and Avihu. Yep. That's powerful. And what's even more so, and let us now put the Mashiach to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by snakes. And don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroying angel. Midat Hadim. Parsha Hukat. Which is connected to Block. (laughs) These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Akharit Hayamim. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. So again, as we've seen before, I love seeing the far shows in the letters. Yeah. As we said before, if you took out the Torah, 
which is supposedly rejected from all these letters, what are you left with? So, I mean, that was just a case in point right there. Like how much Torah was in that? <laughs> a whole lot. <laughs> so let's look at a few things that Paul is trying to tell us in this passage. We are not under a different standard, but the same standard. We're not reading about the mean God of the Old Testament versus the nice God of the New. That's not what he's doing here. He's recounting the historicity. I like how uh, David Stern uh, mm. translates this. These things happen to them as prefigurative historical events. <laughs> Archetypal. Yes, exactly. There are actual physical events. There, you know, you, you have to be, we need to be careful. We can't, there are spiritual aspects to this, but we can't all super spiritualize it. <clears throat> the account of the people who died in the wilderness was written as an example, so we would not do as they did. They all had an apparent spiritual experience. That's why Shaul writes the way he does. Why he's talking about the Torah. The Torah is spiritual. Romans 7, 14. They were immersed. They drank of the spiritual drink. This is making me think Exodus 19. Sanctify the people for in three days I will come down. Hmm. And he also tells Moshe that they will believe in you forever. That's why Shaul writes, and they were immersed in Moshe. They were immersed. They drank of the spiritual drink. They appeared to follow Mashiach. They were not as they appeared. Why? Their lives did not reflect your spiritual experience. Notice their faults. They lusted after evil things, were idolaters, sexually immoral. They tempted by dis they tempted Mashiach by disobedience and complaining, convetching. They're all members of the community of faith, Israel. When did the Messiah show up to the wedding? Third day. In Yochanan 1, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they were not all as they seemed. Notice that nowhere does Paul say that their failing was in keeping Jewish law. <laughs> as our traditional commentators keep incorrectly identifying the Torah of Hashem. Goodness. Of course, so many traditional... See, this is where legalism comes into it. 
we get we're getting the definition of legalism is what man comes up with his own system of do's and don'ts that's legalism which is apart from the commandments of the torah that's legalism own system of do's and don'ts this is what yeshua confronted the pharisees with their own legalism not the mitzvot of the Torah, Hashem's standard of holiness and righteousness. Of course, so many traditional commentators treat the Torah, the law, as a sort of punishment for Israel because of their hard-heartedness. Wow. In their approach, the Torah of Hashem as Jewish law, quote-unquote, <clears throat> is to be explained away with all manner of theological mechanizations like dispensationalism, bilateral ecclesiology, or jurisdictionalism. I've heard that one used on me before. Jurisdiction? Yeah. Okay. That one was used on me before. And I came back and said, there are no jurisdictions in scripture. And so doing, they are doing the very thing that Israel sinned in. See, this is where the irony comes in. Not taking God at his word and by not walking obediently after him. In one breath, they criticize Israel for not obeying God because of their hard hearts. And in the next breath, they say, come on, eat some ham on Easter. You're not under the law. Such malice and hatred is stunning. It indeed is. Instead, what does the traditional commentator take from the example of those who died in the wilderness? Woo, sir. It's a good thing that God lowered that bar. Wow. Or aren't we glad we aren't like those hard-hearted Jews? That is so anti-Semitic. At its heart, it really is. And showing that you yourself have one. Because, you know, the old adage takes one to know one. <laughs> or put up or be quiet. <laughs> yeah. Baloney talks money. <laughs> uh, Baloney walks money talk. Yeah, whatever, how that goes. Oh my gosh, really? <laughs> <laughs> know what you're saying. We know what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, oh, oh goodness. Beloved, God did not lower the bar, and we all find ourselves of the same sinful stock, all of us. This challenge to Israel on the plains of Moab was not merely a depressing reminder of their failures and a future account of their more complete failure. No, indeed. You see, the book of Deuteronomy is not only a history of past failures and a prophecy of future ones. It is a prophecy of complete redemption. In past weeks, we have seen this very thing, a repeated promise of complete redemption for Israel, not merely a redemption from the slave masters of Egypt, Babylon, or Rome, but a redemption that brings the earthly kingdom of Mashiach, 
Now I know that most prophecy conferences only focus on books like Revelation, Daniel, and Matthew, but as such, they are missing the granddaddy of them all, Devarim. We would do well not to take verses of Deuteronomy out of context and to always remember that there is an ultimate end to the back and forth between obedience and disobedience. Watch and see. <laughs> uh, watch the seesaw of emotion here in this week's portion. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, be, nor be afraid of them, uh, people of Canaan. For Hashem, your God, he is the one who give, goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. you now, what verse should that remind you of? About uh, Matthew 28, when he tells his Talmudim to go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations. And I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Yeah. Because there is Shabbat right here in the king of the prophecy books. You find that very phrase. <laughs> Behold, you, Moshe, will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. Deborah 31 16. But where is the measurement of their failures? The Torah, the witness to be found. Take this book of the Torah and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem, your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Deborah 31, 26. Ah, yes. The witness and standard that speaks against their and our failure and sin is beside the Ark of the Covenant. Even with the tablets within the Ark itself, why? Because this is where it belongs, in the heart of the worshiper, at the very throne of the majesty on high. Beloved, the Torah is not banished from the throne of grace. It resides within it. Ooh. Speaking of that, so there's a whole thing in Acts chapter 27. Says when considerable time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said, Men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and the captain of the ship than by what was being said by Paul because the harbor was not suitable for wintering the majority reached a decision to put out to sea from there if somehow they could reach Phoenix a harbor of Crete facing southwest and northwest and spend the winter there so this ultimately leads into uh, 
the shipwreck and all that kind of stuff. But what I yeah. thought was interesting is one of the benchmarkers of time is Yom Kippur. Because it says the fast. Yeah, uh, David Stern uses Yom Kippur. So as far as Mr. Grace, you know, <laughs> Paul, everybody uses Paul to talk about yeah, Grace. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Paul is, uh, he's fixated on the Yom Tov. Yep. Which, again, as you just said so beautifully from the rumination, or the, uh, the Torah part of it, that um, grace is inside of, the Torah is inside of there. The Torah resides within the throne of grace. So, um, but I always love seeing that, like in the in Acts, when they have different Yom Tovim. Yeah, it is. You know, it's... Um, Without a doubt, it condemns the sinner, but without a doubt, its provisions of redemption become the legal basis for our atonement through the perfect lamb, uh, Messiah Yeshua. And as a redeemed people, it is even now being written on our hearts as a witness of grace. Remember what so many commentators have missed in the example of those who died in the wilderness? Grace is not permissive of sin. Grace is enabling it not to not sin. Grace is seen in the Torah being written on our hearts. This is one of the promises of the new covenant. Next week, we will glory in the song of Moshe, a song that was sung over 3,400 years ago on the plains of Moab. It is a song that is united with the song of the Lamb in Revelation 15.3. We would do well not to dismiss those words as so many do in theological arrogance. Until then, as you read this week's portion, remember where this all ends up in the kingdom of Messiah Yeshua with Israel acting as a host to the nations. Oh yeah, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of Hashem's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of Hashem, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. Ki metzion tetze Torah udivar Yerushalayim Amen. For out of Zion shall go forth the Torah and the word of Hashem from Jerusalem. Because uh, Hashem is zealous for Zion, as we brought up before. Yep. So the Torah should bring forth zeal. Yep. And a prayer focus for Vayilech, arise, Hashem. 
as the Torah scroll is taken from the ark before it is read each Shabbat in the synagogue, the following prayer is recited by the congregation. It comes from Numbers 10.35 and from Isaiah 2.2. When the ark would travel, Moshe would say, Arise, Hashem, and let your foes be scattered. Let those who hate you flee from you. For from Zion, the Torah will come forth and the word of Hashem from Jerusalem. Blessed is he who gave the Torah to his people in Israel in his holiness. Amen. The great end gathering may it happen speedily in our days. Amen. Wow. So Benny Shai, huh? Yeah, I was perusing the first couple of pages. <laughs> I love how you're just like, yep, yeah, and we're just gonna go to Benny Shai now. <laughs> Let's see. First, we want to explain the reason this Parsha was, was next to Kitavo, which ended with Devarim 29.8, uh, Beishamartem et de Re, Abrit, Azot, Beasitem, Otam, Lama'an, Ta Shekilu et Ko Asher, Ta Ason. And you shall observe the words of this covenant and do them so that you will succeed in all that you do. The next parsha, Nitzavim, started with Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kulkem Lifnei Adonai. Watch out here. Adonai Elokechem. Nice. You are all standing this day before Hashem, your God. So, so Shomer Mitzvot sweetens the judgment. You you overturn Dean into Chesed through the Mitzvot. That's beautiful. Our rabbis of blessed memory told us that on Rosh Hashanah, Israel are judged during the day. But on the other nations of the world, but the other nations of the world are judged at night. So this is why the Messiah was put on trial at night. Night. For the sake of the nations. He was their shofar blast. He was their ram that was offered. Makes sense now. The reason for the, the Messiah. Time <laughs> the Messiah, well, sorry, one more thing. The okay. Messiah is as much for the nations as he is for the Jews, you know. So, to think about how the atonement works and the uh, the offering and the everything that goes along with that, because we know that there's 12 hours of day, 12 hours of night in Judaism, which correspond to 12 hours of the Tetragrammaton during the day the 12 hours of night correspond to aleph dalit noon yod <clears throat> which is adonai which is more of the severity mm. so yeah 
So the reason for the different times can be understood from a parable about a king who asked the citizens of a town to come to him and discuss their issues. Each of the poor people of the town took a couple of loaves of bread and went to meet the king. And since there was nothing to delay him, delay them, they, came, they became the head of the convoy, similar to the donkey that was not carrying a, carrying a load. On the other hand, the rich people wanted to prepare provisions for the trip and appropriate gifts to the king, since it was not proper to appear before the king empty-handed, and hence they were delayed more than the poor ones. The same applies to Israel, who are wise and understanding people and know how to satisfy the wishes of Hashem and provide gifts before him in the form of prayers that were ordained by our rabbis of blessed memory and which include blowing the shofar to provide tikkun, spiritual repair of many olamot. Hence, Hashem eats barak, waits for them, and judges them during the day so that they can have time to prepare their gifts. The other nations of the world were likened to animals which lack any special knowledge and hence there would be no reason to delay them to the day and they are judged during the night of Rosh Hashanah. Thus, in the last pursuit of Parashat Kitavo, we're told Ushamartem et Devrei Lama An Tishkelu et Ko Asher Taasom. Actually, Ushamartem et Divre Habrit Hazot Be Asitem Otam, in order that Lama An Chaskilu et Kol Asher Teasom to mean that they should have the intelligence and knowledge to, sh to know how to please Hashem by their good deeds and proper behavior since they are educated in all this. The next pursuit, which is the start of the Parashat Nitzavim, Atem Nitzavim Hayom, Kul Kem Lifnei Adonai Elokeikem, the pursuit specifically stated Hayom to mean that Hashem will judge them during the day and not at night like other nations. This is similar to the explanation of our rabbis of blessed memory in Yerushalami, Masekhet Rosh Hashanah 1 3 regarding Ayov 2 1. Vahi Hayom Vayavo Ubene Ha Elohim. Lahit Yatsev al Adonai. Now, on a day that the angels of God came to stand beside Hashem, and we are told in the Zohar, Shemot 32b and 33a, that this is the day of judgment. Another explanation for Atem Nitzavim Hayom Kulkem follows what Kazal told us in Maseket Rosh Hashanah 16b that. The three books are open on Rosh Hashanah. Shal Zedekim B'nei No Ni'im. Yeah, the B'nei the No Ni'im. Rasha'im. Of the righteous, those who are in, in between, and evildoers. 
The righteous are inscribed and sealed for life immediately. The in-between are left hanging until the days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur to see if they will make Teshuva. And the evildoers have to wait until Yom Kippur. Thus, the inscription that is carried out there, carried out are three types, initial, middle, and at the end. There are 22 letters of the Torah in the Torah and five <coughs> uh, letters. These are the five letters which are written differently when they are at the end of a end of a word. Uh, the Sophites. Mm -hmm. For a total of 27 letters with the Aleph at the beginning, the Mem in the middle, and the Tav at the end, forming the word Emet, truth. The Pasuk stated, Atem Netzavim Hayom Kulkem, and Atem has the same letters as Emet to signify the first middle, the first middle and last groups to be inscribed as a remez to the three levels that are Nitzavim Hayom Kulkem to mean on Rosh Hashanah, Lifnei Adonai Elokeikem. In addition, Atem, which has the uh, same letters as Emet, truth, is a remez that liars will not be privileged to stand before the Shekinah. Also, Hayom, this day could be written as. Uh, hey Yom, five days. As a remez to the five days of awe when every person has to be awakened to make teshuva, and these are the two days of Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Hosanna Rabbah when the decrees are sealed, and on Shemini Atzeret when the reports are delivered. Yeah, I may have to post that in the group. <laughs> That's really good. Yep. Um, Anything else before we uh, close out 5781? Um, that you may be inscribed in the book of life, of good livelihood this coming year. Amen. May you be inscribed and sealed for a sweet year. And may all of your learning be taken to the next dimension. And you be given the ability to articulate it for the masses. Because the world needs Torah and we need light so, so much. Yep. And I feel like everything that's ahead of us i mean the light's gonna have to be so powerful to shine through so may you be among those who are the light bearers of truth that permeate this present darkness oh may we be named among the zedekim this coming year that hold the world together wow i mean Baruch Hashem.
Well, Amen. to everyone who's listening, Ketiva Vekatima Tova. Amen to that. Yeah, he ratzon. Prayer after study. I thank you, O Hashem, my God, that you have established my portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established my portion with idlers, for I rise early and they rise early. I rise early for words of Torah, and they rise early for idle words. I toil and they toil. I toil and receive reward, and they all toil and do not receive reward. I run and they run. I run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction, as it is written. And you, O God, will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natan Lanu Torat Emet Vekaye Olam Natan Betochenu Baruch Ata Adonai Noten HaTorah Amen Shana Tova. Wow.